The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. And then we'll begin our study. Romans chapter 5. Sorry, Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verse 16. Galatians 5, 16 through the end of the chapter. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word which we have before us this morning. And pray for your help in our study and understanding of it. To that end, Lord, we pray for the Spirit to illuminate our minds to the true meaning of the text. That we may see in it the beauty and the power of the gospel to change us. Not only in our justification, to declare us and make us righteous before you, O Lord, but in our living, that we may honor you with our lives. Lord, we ask, again, as you lead us in the Spirit, that we would be attuned to what that leading looks like and how we might then leave this morning in greater assurance and confidence that we are following the teachings of Christ and the leading of the Spirit For your glory, we pray this as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's a bit of a preaching cliché to reference the movie The Matrix, but clichés are cliché for a reason. Uh, Though my reference to The Matrix won't be the common reference about reality is not what you think it is, Matrix reference. In fact, if anything, my reference this morning to the movie The Matrix will be the opposite, that the reality the matrix presupposes is not the true reality as we understand it. Consider when Neo, who is the protagonist, the chosen one of the movie, chooses to join the revolution against the matrix and all of the machines. He intends now to take down from the inside the illusion of the matrix, to free humanity once and for all from tyrannical oppressors who desire simply to harvest them like fruit on a tree. Well, he does this famously by preparing to to fight the enemies 
who control the matrix. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he decides to join the revolution and is in the training montage portion and he's now learning the ropes. He takes the red pill and then he has to train with Morpheus. Now, Morpheus brings him into some sort of battle station and Neo, of course, knows nothing about fighting or battling. Well, what's the solution to this? Every martial arts is downloaded into Neo's brain. Just stick the needle in the back of the head, press the button, and now he is a warrior, can fight anything. In fact, you see this as he begins to fight, he's, he's surprised that he knows how to throw punches and kicks and all the stuff that Amanda does on the weekends and really, really well, and he has never trained or studied at all. Now all of a sudden he's fighting with techniques that he's never known before. There's another scene later on in the movie when asked by Neo if she can fly a helicopter so that they can make their escape from Agent Smith. Trinity, who's another one of the band of heroes, replies, well, not yet. What does she do? She calls, says, I need all the information about how to fly this helicopter. Hang up the phone, she says, let's go. Now, James, I don't know how your flight school went, but I'm assuming it would have been a lot easier if you could have just made a call and downloaded it into your brain. Haven't we all wished that this was something that we could do? Studying for a test, going to school, just all of our education, learning a new skill? Forget the 10,000 hours to become an expert. If we could just put a USB stick into our ears and learn everything there is to know about a subject, how much more convenient would that be? Now, obviously, there's a lot that we miss out in not learning and studying and failing, and I would never hope that our technology advances to the point where we would use this. God help us if it gets there. But the idea here is, of course, that we don't live in the matrix. Reality just doesn't work that way. You cannot download all information and knowledge and perfect behavior in an instant. In God's wise discretion, he has not chosen to render us morally perfect from the beginning. He has not chosen to imbue us with all the virtues, having been completely mastered in our hearts. Not even after we've been saved and our hearts have been renewed and regenerated, we still do not have mastered for us the virtues of the Christian life. Rather, Paul says, we have been given freedom but now we are called to walk in that freedom. Recall earlier in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Or again in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the reality is not that we have instantaneously been given all of the virtues, mastered all of the moral perfections that Christians and humanity has been designed and purposed to live, but we have been given instead freedom that we might pursue and grow in those virtues. So when we consider Galatians 5 here, and a really popular passage of the vice and virtue list, particularly here about the fruit of the Spirit. We need to remember that what's unique about a passage like this is not the lists of the vices and the virtues per se. 
They're worthy of our study and all of God's word is profitable. But these lists of both the list of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are not necessarily original to Paul, nor are they exhaustive. He says there are other things like these. The list could go on as he speaks of the works of the flesh. Now to focus on the lists here as a kind of moral checklist would be to completely miss the point of what Paul has been arguing for and has been trying to communicate all along. The question, of course, is not whether one should have and practice virtue. In God's grace, most people would agree that we should. Most people understand that patience and joy and gentleness and self-control are worthy virtues, Christian or not, to embody and to practice. Philosophers and religious theorists down through the ages have all come up with various kinds of lists similar to what Paul gives us here. The question is not whether one should have and practice virtue, but how one becomes virtuous. How does one become patient, become loving? How does one grow in self-control? How does one give in generosity, care and service to others? How is one gentle and not boastful, calm, peaceful, kind, good? It's not a matter of whether or not we should pursue these things, but how we actually obtain them. And that's where gospel, Paul's gospel, stands out from the other philosophies of the moral teaching of his day. See, Paul wasn't focusing solely on the lists as ends and of themselves, but instead how Christians, justified by faith and freed in Christ to walk according to that faith, now obtain what is to be the outcome of our faith. In other words, we have the objective justification given and delivered to us by God through Christ, that is, our salvation, declared righteous, and we are called to walk in that declaration that our lives might demonstrate the truth of that objective reality. We call this sanctification, the growing and the conforming into the image of God who is holy. Our character, changed by the Spirit, begins to match God's. And so what's important about our text is not that we should be joyful, patient, peaceful, good, and so on. And not simply that we must not be envious, covetous, pursuing sexual moralities, idolatries, strife, and so on. But rather how we are to avoid those sins and how we are to pursue those virtues. That's what is unique and that's what we'll focus on. And as a way of example, I just want to give you two historical figures and how they each set about attempting to do just this. You may be familiar with Ben Franklin. He was a prolific writer and teacher uh, in our country's early formation and was very helpful in, as I understand it, in the forming and the sustaining of our early nation. Well, if you take time to read some of his writings, particularly his autobiography, he sets out on a path of what he calls moral improvement plan. In fact, you can look it up. I've got a copy here. It's called Plan for Obtaining Moral Perfection by Benjamin Franklin. 
Now, I don't know if he was genuinely a Christian or not. He seems to like Jesus well enough, but my suspicion is that he had a few things wrong about the gospel. But listen to what he says about his plan for moral perfection. Again, he would agree, and we'll see in his list of virtues here, something very similar to the fruit of the Spirit. He says that it was about this time that I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. And what a goal. Only Benjamin Franklin would set a goal of moral perfection like that. He says, I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. And so he went about doing it. He collated all the different kinds of virtues, and he made his list of 13 temperance, which is not drinking or eating to excess, silence, meaning that he would speak but only may benefit himself or others to avoid trifling conversation, order, to have all things in their places, resolutions, to perform what he ought, frugality, that he may make no expense but to do good for others or yourself, Industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. Under humility, notably, he writes simply to imitate Jesus and Socrates. Two very different teachers and pictures of humility, both worthy of their study, one infinitely more. But he goes on to say, this is his plan. He writes down these virtues, and he'll begin to work on those virtues one by one. He says, my intention being to acquire the habitude of all these virtues, I judge that it would not be well to distract my attention by attempting it all at once, but to fix on one of them at a time, and when I should be master of that, then proceed to another, and so on, till I had gone through all 13. And so he would make a little book, He'd put a table in his book. At the end of each day and each week, he'd check himself about how he did. And his goal was, in that week, temperance, for instance, no check marks, no marks. He has mastered temperance for the week. And he would presumably do this each week, each month, each year for the rest of his life so that he would have obtained moral perfection. I don't think he did. Now let me compare Benjamin with this guy. I don't usually use visual aids, but I printed out. This guy's name is Jonathan Edwards. He is famous for many things, but one of the most fruitful in my own life has been his resolutions. If you have something to look forward to reading this coming new year, grab a copy of his resolutions. You can find them online. They're free. They're about 70 of his resolutions that he wrote when he was in his very early 20s. Let me just read a couple of his resolutions, and then why I think we should follow Edwards' example towards how we may grow in virtues rather than Franklin's. He says, Resolve that I will do whatever I think to be to God's glory and to my own good, profit and pleasure, in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriad of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty, most for the good and the advantage of mankind in general, Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, however many great soever. Resolved to never do anything out of revenge. Resolved to never speak evil of any, except that I have some particular good to call for it. 
Resolved to let there never be something, let there always be something of benevolence in all that I speak. Resolved, if I take delight in it as a gratification of my pride or vanity or of any such account that I would immediately throw it by. That's working on his character. Resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. He has this in common with Franklin. Resolved to examine carefully and constantly what the one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt of the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. Resolved whenever I do any conspicuously evil action to trace it back till I come to the origin of the cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. Last resolution I'll read, resolve to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in Him and concentrate myself, consecrate myself wholly to Him that from this I may have assurance of my safety knowing that I confide in my Redeemer. That last, that's resolution 53, gives us an idea of how Jonathan Edwards understood how he would grow in such virtues. He writes this in the very beginning of the list. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions, so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. What's the difference between these two men? They both agreed on virtue. Some of their virtues and desires and pursuits were the same in terms of temperance, in terms of speech and chastity and so on. But both of them, having agreed on virtue, fundamentally disagreed on how those virtues may be obtained. Franklin, by his own moral output, would work himself one by one to become masters of each virtue. But Edwards understood that it was only by God's grace. He would depend upon the mercy of God's leading. He would look to Christ in his character as the means by which he would obtain these virtues rather than himself. Over and over again in Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, we see that his character was one of humility to give himself over to the will of God as he leads him and provides the answer and fulfillment of these things, not to anyone else. So what would Jonathan Edwards say, along with Paul, is how we are to grow in Christian virtue. If here in Galatians, we are to take the objective reality of our justification by faith and walk in the freedom of that justification, Paul says you do this not by your own strength, certainly not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. How do we grow in Christian virtue? This is so important to the Christian life. This is probably the most important chapter on the Christian life in all of the Bible. If you were to grow in Christian virtue, you must have a changed heart. You are to only pursue and achieve and obtain these kinds of fruits if you have the Spirit of God. Let's look at the text and see how Paul teaches us this. There in verse 16 he says, But I say, or, or, or listen carefully, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is, an imperative, a command, walk by the Spirit, 
And there's a promise attached to the command. You will not gratify the desires of flesh. Meaning, there's a cause and effect. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what is the antidote to our giving in and caving into temptations to gratify the desires of the flesh? Paul says you must walk by the Spirit in order to not gratify those desires. There's an imperative and a promise which are attached together. In other words, he says it this way, that the only way to overcome the flesh, which doesn't mean just the material body, by the way, but it means the sinful habits, the corrupt nature which desires and longs for sin and evil contrary to God's will. It's not just the, the material flesh, but the heart and the mind also. If we are to have victory over the flesh and its temptation and desires, we must do so by the Spirit. Paul puts it another way in Romans 8. He says, If we put to death the deeds of the body, by the Spirit we will live. So it is the Spirit which is the means of our putting to death the deeds of the flesh. The only way to overcome the flesh is by the Spirit. It goes on, verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul knows this very well. In chapter 7 of Romans, Paul talks just about this same war that's going on. That he desires to do the things that he doesn't want to do because sin is still at large in his members, but also he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. The spirit is at war with the flesh. In other words, we learn that the Christian life is a life of warfare. This is holy war. It is spirit versus flesh. This isn't neutrality, self-improvement, or empowerment speech. This is warfare language that he uses here. They are opposed to one another. In other words, we can think about it this way. Paul teaches us that there are two natures in man. Or as Martin Luther puts it, two captains over the life of man. The old nature, of course, was at war against God from afar. We opposed God and His Word and His law. We sought to do what we desired and rebel against Him as King. But God came near to us and the Spirit through Christ has invaded our soul. And now the war has been brought to the home front. The battlefield now is your own heart. And so there is now a spiritual nature, a supernatural nature at work within you, battling against your flesh or your old nature. Now this is not to say that the work of justification is ongoing. No, it is a clear and one-time decisive event where God declares you righteous in Christ, you are adopted. But the reality will be that He does not master, give you mastery over the flesh immediately, but rather gives you the Spirit that you, by faith, through the Spirit, may overcome the temptations of the flesh Paul puts it like this elsewhere, that you put off the old self and you put on the new. That you fight and defeat the old man because you are a new creation. 
these two natures or two captains, captains are at war with one another in our very body. For instance, when he says in Romans 7 that I delight in the law of God in my inner being, Paul speaks there of his spiritual nature. He is a child of God and he has been brought by faith to love the law of God, that is, his word, in his inner being. But he says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So, so Paul here is referencing this very real spiritual battle that is raging within every believer. And if he struggles with such temptations, when he sees that the, the war of sin and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit are happening within his own body, how much more would we, was me, we be encouraged by the same battle in our own life? In fact, that's an application for us to consider this morning, that we should not be discouraged at the presence or the temptation of sin. That it is very normal in the Christian life to continue to sin. Lynn Luther would tell us that Christians are saints and yet are still sinners. We must not be discouraged at the presence and the temptation of sin. Even in our failure to resist temptation, we must recognize that we are engaged in a war and there will be times when we do not faithfully endure temptation. This is not a time of despair, however, for despair on the battlefield will get you killed. Rather, you must acknowledge that this is a war and you are a warrior. Acknowledge that I am a sinner and I feel sin in me. But it's not simply to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you experience the reality of that war in your sinful desires and temptations, but you then must lay claim to that second and greater nature, your spiritual nature, by which all the desires of the flesh might be overcome. You are to look to Christ, who is the righteous one, who is your very righteousness. He is the great reward of your soul, the giver and the sender of the Spirit by which you will overcome. And remember that he himself waged war against the enemy in his own flesh and had defeated him and put him to open shame so that in your war against the flesh, you would have great confidence and encouragement that you would overcome. So note then what verse 18 says. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So when we consider that we are being led by the Spirit, we recognize that we are not only free from the law, but therefore, and I think to Paul's greater point here, we are free from the condemnation of the law, the judgment of failing before a righteous standard we could never earn or maintain. If we are led by the Spirit to Christ who earns and maintains our righteousness for us, there is no condemnation. Being led by the Spirit means you walk in that freedom. This is what it means. Take hold of the spiritual nature granted to you by your justification and walk, follow, be led by the Spirit to Christ who is your righteousness. And be not discouraged as you cannot and are not condemned. The Spirit is the proof of the guarantee of your inheritance that Christ's war against the flesh has been won. 
The battle raged there in his life and ultimately on the cross is final and decisive in favor of Christ. And therefore, the spirit that Christ sends to us leads us to trust in that work sufficiently, frees us from condemnation, frees us from the law, and gives us the ability to walk in that freedom, enables us to obey all that God has done. Not that we may earn sanctification or salvation, but that we may give glory to God in a life we are now able to live free from the law. So Paul then goes on to give an example of what the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit may look like. How this walking is to be lived out. Notice he says in verse 19 that the works of the flesh are evident. He means it's obvious what is contrary to your justification. To Christians especially, this is contrary to the will of God. In fact, they are all the more obvious still to those whose desire is to do the will of God. That is, as Christians become Christians, when they are converted and given the Spirit, they look at the will of God and they say, this is what I want to do. How the more obvious are these works of the flesh contrary to those very things? The will that we've been called to live, that freedom in which we've been called to walk, runs out of discord to the works of the flesh and the desires of an evil heart. What is often, however, noticed or unnoticed and needs exposure, now, by the Spirit, naturally provokes our heart to take action against it. There are certain things we need to be called out for. It's easy enough to notice the sins of sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality there in verse 19. But the sins of idolatry can be much more subtle. Even sorcery which at its heart is manipulation and distrust, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of these things are much harder to see on the outside and much easier to cover with moral behavior despite a heart of jealousy and envy and division. But these things are often unnoticed by those who care not about the will of God, who cares not about the living by the Spirit, but those who are committed to do the will of God or who live in a community in which their desire is to do the will of God, those things are now naturally provoked and exposed and our hearts are now inclined to take action against those matters. This is what Paul, I think, means when he says that these works are evident. They're obviously not in keeping with the Spirit. They are not evidence of one who's saved by grace through faith, but evidence of one who desires to live according to the flesh. These works are evidence. But notice also that these works tend to often look like freedom. At least that's how they're marketed to us. The works and the sins of sexual immorality, impurity and sensuality, the idolatry, the the jealousy, the rivalries, the drunkenness and the orgies and things like that in our culture today are given to us, marketed to us as freedoms to enjoy. In fact, the most enlightened of our society are ones who feel the most freedom to enjoy these things. These works look like freedom. We're encouraged not only by our own flesh, but by our very culture, our government, our teachers, our friends, even our families, to enjoy the freedom of our own desires. That it's right and natural to follow our heart. 
to be ourselves, to pursue whatever makes us happy, to be you. Well, the problem is that you are a sinner, that your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. To follow your heart means to follow evil desires apart from Christ and apart from the Spirit. There is no fruit. These works masquerade as freedoms, but Paul here says that no, for those who are to be led by the Spirit, it is evident that this is not real freedom. Look where it lands in verse 24, or excuse me, in verse 21. He says that I warn you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the warning is that there is no real freedom in these. And for the Christian, it must be evident that this is not the way or the path of life. Friends, have you, as you consider this list for just a moment, walked in any of these patterns believing that you had the freedom to do so? Yes, there is Christian liberty and freedom to enjoy alcohol but you are not free to enjoy it to excess and drunkenness. If you're drunk, know that your Christian freedom does not give you license to be so. In fact, behind each one of these things, there is a heart issue and disposition at play. And your freedom does not give you license to enjoy them as such, but rather to avoid them, to repute them. These sorts of things need not to be named or numbered among God's people. They are not freedoms, but they are bondages that will keep us from the kingdom of God. This is a very serious and sober warning. But he goes on, he says, and he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. I think it's worth noticing the difference there. He doesn't say the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But he says, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The difference there is that one is produced by something that is within them. The other is something active, pursued, because of a contrary heart to God's will. Notice a few things about the fruit of the Spirit. We don't have time to look at each one of them. I hope that we'll have, over the course of the next several weeks, some conversations which enlighten these things for us. But he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here's what I want us to know about these fruit of the Spirit. First, know that they are rooted in the moral character of God Himself. These are not abstract. These are not random. But these are characteristics of God Himself. We know, of course, that John the Apostle tells us that God is love. That He gives us joy from within Himself. That Christ is the Prince of Peace. That God is Himself patient and long-suffering. This is His own definition there in Deuteronomy. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That He is rich in kindness. He is faithful. He is gentle. These characteristics are not simply the height of humanity, but they are exact characteristics of God's own virtue. So these virtues that we pursue are actually rooted in the character of God Himself. 
Of course, these were perfected and demonstrated perfectly for us by Christ. And it's the source of Christian virtue that we come to Christ to receive. It is our union with Christ. He says then there in verse 24 that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So those who belong to Christ, who are united to Christ by faith, now receive the beginning of the virtues in seed form of which are grown into maturity by faith. The source of the Christian virtue is union with Christ through the Spirit. Remember what he says in chapter 2, verse 20. He says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is true of God, and therefore of Christ, becomes true of us by virtue of our having been united to him by faith. That's the key to the Christian life. The source of our virtue is our union with Christ. What is true of God, and therefore Christ, who is God, is true of us, becomes true of us, by virtue of our having been united to him by faith. Now, please note that I am not saying that we are divine, or we take on divinity to ourselves the way Christ had taken on humanity to himself. I am saying that God, to quote Peter, that we read this morning, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, here's his words, we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is to say that Paul in chapter 4 in Ephesians, that we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and humility. So what is the picture of true righteousness and humility? God is. What do we put on? The new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and humility. So when we say that God is righteous, perfect, patient, kind, good, and all of these virtues, we pursue and receive and grow in these virtues, not by our endeavoring to do them through a plan of moral perfection, like Benjamin Franklin would suggest, but by uniting ourselves to the Godhead himself through faith, becoming partakers of that divine nature and putting on the new self through the spirit that we might become a more fuller, complete image bearers of God. That's the radical identity of the Christian. This is why Paul's lists here of vice and virtue is so different from all the other philosophers that come before them. He says that by virtue of being united to Christ, the seed of righteousness has been planted in your heart. It has only to grow. You are to seek maturity. Your fruit is to be ripened. You need not plant the seed yourself. You need not simply to find and discover. You already have within you the very seeds of righteousness that has been planted in your heart through the Spirit, which Christ has earned for you. Righteousness is not of our own. But the reality is that every new Christian must tend to the growing of that righteousness. But he does not do so in his own strength either, but through the strength the Spirit provides. So here's the formula. Christians to grow in righteousness receives it first by God through faith in the work of Christ, who is our righteousness, becoming partakers of that divine nature and having been created as a new creation, putting on the new self after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And we tend to, through the Spirit, 
the maturing and the growing and the watering and the nurturing of the seed of faith which produces the fruit of righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? Not from you. Where does the fruit come from? Not from you. It is all the fruit of the Spirit, belonging to the Spirit, of the righteousness of Christ. But our work, if we can call it that, is simply to work to the tending of such fruit. This is what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is all of these things, which is a picture of the character of God to whom we have been united and partakers of that divine nature through our faith in Christ. Now we can see then that there is no way to overcome the temptation to desires of the flesh without the Spirit, because there is no way that we can become like the image of our Creator without Him who has created us. So the fruit of the Spirit is not something we aspire to in order to earn our approval before God, but that which has already received its approval now must come to fruition in our very lives. Consider the acorn. Theoretically, the acorn has the ability to populate the entire universe with oak trees. It only needs to be actualized. If it's planted, it's grown, it bears fruit, and it continues to multiply. Such as the seed of righteousness planted within our heart grows, bears fruit, and gives growth and fruit and life to all forms of righteousness in our lives. This means that Christ has died so that you could receive the seed of righteousness, His righteousness, that you may walk in freedom to be what God has intended you to be. Remember, we were, grown, we were created in the image of God, and because of our sin, the image was distorted. And the only way to receive a corrected and restored image is to receive the righteousness of faith given to us by God in Christ. Okay. So how do we summarize the call of the Christian life? He gives us two exhortations, and we end this way. Look at verse 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, here's the exhortation, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the first exhortation is to keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means very literally, where the Spirit leads you follow. The wording there is to follow in the footsteps. It's the same word we get to the foot doctor. The podiatrist, is that what it's called? I don't know the Greek that well. And it's the same. In fact, the, the students of Aristotle were called the same Greek word because they would literally follow Aristotle around as he taught. This is how we must follow the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit, which points us to Christ, which points us to the righteousness of Christ, which points us to the character of God, when we follow its pointing and its leading, and we arrive there at Christ in the character of God, we are then keeping in step with the Spirit. It is a very real, active, walking in step with the Spirit. That's the first exhortation. Brothers and sisters, you must keep in step with the Spirit. If you notice, as you are walking, it is in the direction opposite of Christ. You are walking not according with the Spirit, but according with the flesh. You must keep in step with the Spirit. Well, how do we know we're keeping in step with the Spirit? That's the million-dollar question. The Spirit Himself bears witness. The Scriptures teach us and point us to Christ. Our faith community enables us to hold ourselves accountable to one another, that we are on the path of righteousness. Romans teaches us that righteousness is only from Christ by faith. And Psalm chapter 1 tells us that it is in keeping in righteousness that we are to know and keep in step with the Lord, where our fruit can be in its season. 
So the first exhortation here is in to keep in step with the Spirit, simply to, to reject and refuse walking in the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. The second exhortation here, and important for our, our community, is to let us not become, verse 26, conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, not an exhaustive list, but here, do not do that which is of the flesh, but pursue that which is of the Spirit. In other words, when we think about this, we are not to become conceited or provoking or envying or any of that, not simply that we can become holy in and of itself, but that the goal of spiritual fruit isn't our personal holiness or our individual piety. Rather, the fruit of the Spirit is worked out, and if I may use the pun, fleshed out together as a church. See, many of the virtues here in the fruit of the Spirit are exercised for the good of others. Patience is exercised for the sake of another person. Gentleness with others. Kindness towards others. Self-control in your relationships with others. There are so many of this that is practiced in the context of relationships and community. That these works of the fruit of the Spirit are to be borne out together not simply for our own personal holiness or individual piety. In other words, we could put it this way. Mature freedom, which is what we must strive to, the maturity of the fruit of the Spirit, which is our freedom, looks like constraining our lives for the flourishing of others. Like self-control puts a restraint. Gentleness puts a restraint on our excesses. Love puts a restraint on our evil. Joy puts a restraint on our sorrow. Peace puts a restraint on our hostility. Patience puts a restraint of our our impatience. Kindness on our harm. The constraining of ourselves for the sakes of others is the purpose of the fruit of the Spirit. It is not an independence of one another, but in mutual dependence of one another. Nothing, of course, could be more like Jesus who constrains himself to death. He constrains his deity by setting it aside. That's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He doesn't become less God, but sets aside the use of his divine authority and prerogative so that he might take on flesh and he might suffer the death that we deserve. This is the very definition of constraint. He is constrained to obedience, even to death so that we might receive the flourishing, that the fruit of such holiness, that the restoration of our image marred by sin might be restored to reconciliation and power relationship with God. This is what Jesus does on our behalf. And so when we say we walk in the fruit of the freedom of the Spirit, we are really walking in the footsteps of Christ himself, who constrains himself that we may flourish. He unites us to the divine Godhead, that we may walk and the newness of life, being partakers of the divine nature in our new created self, imaged after the likeness of God who is our creator in all true righteousness and holiness, he performs, has achieved, and enables us to do that. So what does the Christian life look like? It looks like we keep in step with the Spirit by leading, by following his lead to the cross, and by working together the works of the flesh against the works of the flesh in the fruit of the Spirit that we may benefit one another in love and in service. Next week as we look in chapter 6 and onward, we'll see exactly what that service together looks like. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, His death, His own constraining, the setting aside of His divine prerogative and the use 
of his divine right by condescending to becoming like us. Remember and think of and dwell on the incarnation where God became man and in his humanity took on flesh and the penalty of human sin, though he did not sin, that we might have his righteousness. So we pray, God, that as we walk in such freedom of the righteousness which we've been given, we would do so in a way that bears fruit, that rejects and repudiates the works of the spirit of the, of the flesh and takes seriously our call to walk in freedom of the fruit of the Spirit. Not that the righteousness is our own or the fruit is produced by our action, but rather Christ who works in us through the Spirit produces what He has gained and secured for us once and for all. So we love you, Lord, we pray. We ask for help as always in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.